Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and in this episode I'm joined by a much-loved radio broadcaster who's been on air since the early 80s. His Drive Time Radio 2 show has a listenership of millions and he hosts the BBC's flagship film programme on Radio 5 Live. As an author, he has written four young adult books, three of which star a science-obsessed hero called Itchingham Loft. And he joins me now to talk about his first adult novel, Mad Blood Stirring. It's Simon Mayer. Hello, Simon. How are you doing, David? I'm good. I'm very good. It's really lovely to see you. And I really enjoyed Mad Blood Stirring, can I say. I'm going to ask you just to say very briefly what it's about, just to begin with. Well, the book starts, we arrive with a very striking 16-year-old American sailor, a white sailor called Joe Hill. The year is 1814. He's being marched across Dartmoor to Dartmoor Prison, which he knows is a hellhole. But he and his comrades are singing because he's found out that the, the War of 1812, which is the war he's been fighting, is over. So therefore his reasoning is we're in a good state here because if there's no war, you can't be a prisoner of war. However, he's there for four months. And in that four-month period, he will uh, witness a smallpox outbreak He'll be incarcerated in a blacks-only prison, which Mm. I'm sure we'll get to, witness escape attempts, and he'll fall in love. So the heart of this story is the true story, which is that in 1814, in Dartmoor Prison, there was a production of Romeo and Juliet. It's not rare for prisoners of war to have theatre companies, but what's odd about this is that Prison 4, because there are seven blocks in Dartmoor Prison, and it became, at the request of the white American sailors, it became the only racially segregated prison in British history. So Block 4 becomes this amazing kind of melting pot of ideas and songs and plays, and they put on Romeo and Juliet. And that was yeah. when, I, when I found that out. I thought, well, that's a story that's been waiting to be told. The American War of Independence is, what, 1776, is that yeah, right? Yeah. Okay. They win it. They, do, they, 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 won. they, they did. They, they, they definitely won. Okay, they definitely won that because they're pleased about it. I've they seen are. them celebrate it yes, and all that stuff. <laughs> that's true. So why... Why are they fighting it again at the start of the 19th century? Well, the, the, the first thing that was on President Madison's declaration when he, was, when he declared war was the fact that the British were still stopping American ships and taking their sailors. The right. impress was carrying on. The, the British had this habit of taking uh, sailors from wherever they could find them and pressing them into, into the Royal Navy. And that was the first thing that they were uh, objecting to. The British saw it more of a trade war, which is starting to get like the first of that Phantom Menace. You know, the scroll at the beginning of Star Wars Phantom Menace. Yeah. It's a great long thing about a trade war. Yeah. By the time you get to the end of the scroll, you've already given up any yeah. hope of understanding what's going on. So the, the other thing we wouldn't know is that American prisoners of war were being taken on British soil. I didn't even know that happened during the first American war, uh, particularly. So that's presumably quite a thing to transport these prisoners back uh, to Britain. Yeah, you would, th- you would, you would think, think they'd they just were... leave them in America. Or, or they were somewhere closer. Some of them did end up uh, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, somewhere in Bermuda, I think. But a whole bunch of them, or 7,000, end up in Dartmoor. Many thousand British were, were held in American prisons and they were treated as common criminals. So they were put in standard prisons next to murderers and... Presumably this is before anything. There's no kind of Red Cross Geneva Convention for treating prisoners of war at this, that's point, <laughs> at this point. In They're time. all treated terribly. They're all treated very badly. And it yeah. sounds like from the way you write it, Dartmoor itself is a character in this book, the prison, I mean. Yeah. The more a little bit, but more the prison, which from the word go is represented as this kind of enormous, monstrous monster split into a number of different blocks. That's one of the first things you realise is this is 
segregated. This is going to be neighbourhoods within yep. this city, really, of a prison. Exactly right. I mean, if you go past Dartmoor Prison now, it still looks the most godforsaken place you'll ever see. Overwhelmingly grey, overwhelmingly grim. You know, and now you know when you look in at the buildings that that, that there is there are human rights, there are basic standards which all the prisoners are being kept under. It's a Category 3 prison now. But 200 years ago, it must have been the most terrifying place Hmm. that the sailors found their way of surviving and Hmm. they were paid a salary and there was a market, you know, so it's a a strange juxtaposition of, uh, on the one hand, atrocious conditions and on the other hand, being paid up and take me a week so you can go to the market and buy rum. Yeah. Well, let's let's hear a bit of the book now, actually, uh, relating to that because... Right at the beginning, uh, in the audio book, we hear about the 12 American sailors from the ship. What's the ship called? The Eagle. The Eagle, yes. Yeah, the Eagle uh, are being brought in by their British captors and they face the looming presence of Dartmoor Prison. Let's hear that now. The summit was marked by a solitary, skeletal pine tree and a militiaman sitting beneath it stood to greet them, his arms open wide. Welcome to Dartmoor, he beamed. Why don't we rest your rotten Yankee bones here for two minutes, just so you can take it all in, like? Joe clambered his way over the top, pushing Goff, then pulling Roach as he went. Around him, the curse him told him everything he needed to know. This wasn't the casual profanity that was part of a sailor's life. This was fearful, terrified blasphemy. Sweet baby Jesus, would you look at that? Christ alive! Across the fields, another half-mile of gorse and stones, a great prison city had been carved from the moor. A huge encampment of enormous grey hulks, vast granite buildings with pointed roofs shunted hard together, seemed to grow from the earth. There were turrets, chimneys, fences, and surrounding the whole, two formidable encircling walls. All of it was grey, a deathly, exhausted, pain-filled grey. An unearthly silence seemed to spread across the fields, reaching out from the prison to envelop the sailors. What in God's name, muttered Joe, dread settling deep in his stomach. It's a ghost town. A goddamn ghost town. And we're the goddamn ghosts, said Roach. That was an extract of the audiobook of Mad Blood Stirring, written by my guest Simon Mayo and read by Rashan Stone. You've also brought along, haven't you, uh, a series of objects, some of which relate to the book and some of which relate to your life more generally, as is traditional on the Penguin podcast. But the first object is a map, is that right, of Dartmoor Prison that you found? (laughs) Well, this is is from uh, an old book which is called The Yarn of a Yankee Privateer, edited by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh, When the American sailors got home, after the war, they wrote memoirs, like, right. which, like much as they would do now, and a lot of them were bestsellers. Uh, and this was one of them. Uh, but the Yankee privateer is unnamed. We don't know who he is, but it's an, it's a kind of an eye-watering and very illuminating account of prison life. And in it, there's a map. Oh, uh, right. Which is the basis of the map that we put in the book, which has those two walls and the seven blocks and its general positioning on Dartmoor. And right. I've lived with that for the last two years, so... You asked me to bring in some sort of objects which yeah. sort of inspired the writing. So that's been staring at me uh, over my computer for quite a while. So this map was would have been drawn at the time? Yes, yes, okay. absolutely at the time. Yeah. yeah, and the memoir, as you say, it's kind of like Andy McNabb, uh, but, <laughs> but slightly <laughs> less successful Andy McNabb in, in the 19th century. Yes. So was this how you began to put yourself in the shoes 
of a prisoner of war in uh, you know eighteen. Yeah, re- yes. Reading their memoirs, this is where he they, they talk about drinking coffee which is made out of peas. That was something that I really thought about a lot when I was reading your book because it comes up quite a lot. They drink coffee, uh, and then you hear that it's peas. And in fact, at one point, King Dick, who will come to, who's a massive character in the book, offers it to I think the Jerry, agent. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He offers yeah, it to the agent. Done, yeah. or, or he offers it to someone who's not used, to, and he says it's made out of peas, so it'll taste bitter or whatever. And I then started thinking, could I make coffee from peas? How do you do that? <laughs> I, I, I imagine you, uh, you, you, you presumably you have to grind them down, but it's not coffee, is it? No, I mean, it's coffee bee juice. Yes, it's 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 hot water poured on ground down dried up peas. Yeah, but they they call it coffee. They brew it in in the in the coffee style. But they all call it coffee. Yeah, and they get used to it the way you get used to all kinds of and that privations. kind of information you were finding out presumably from presumably there are modern history books as well you were using. A lot of this stuff is has been hugely underreported, but yeah. there are. You come across them every now and again, academic books, which if you order online, cost like £50 because it's got a very limited market. So I've got lots of books on prisoners of war uh, in Dartmoor, lots of books about sailing at the turn of the 19th century. But it's books like this that give you the day-to-day enlightenment, really, as to what it was like. So, for example, they he makes a passing reference to the fact that loads of the sailors, the white sailors, go to Block 4 to hear their amazing choir. Uh, I should and, explain, Block 4 is okay. the, where the black sailors are. Yeah, the black sailors are all in four. All the other prisons uh, are white. The white sailors go in and watch some of the plays in Block 4, and they also make a point of going in to hear the choir, which he says is full of, you know, it's full of the most amazing music. Mm. Now, I talked to uh, Basil Mead about this, who's the guy who runs the London Community Gospel Choir, and I said, this is gospel music. This is mm. Negro spirituals. These yeah. are Negro spirituals, which is still yeah. the correct term because he told me. Yeah. And so this becomes the first time these spirituals have been heard in this country. The assumption had been that it was later in Victorian times and gospel choirs came over and they sang to Gladstone and Queen Victoria and so on. But many, many decades before that, that's why these white sailors were going, wow, I haven't heard this before. But in terms of people writing down as part of record the fact that they've heard a choir, a clearly a black-only choir, mm. and being blown away by it. I think this is the earliest reference to Right. It. OK. Let's talk about the character I just mentioned there, King Dick. But before we talk about him, I think he's introduced in the next bit of writing we're going to hear. Joe, in a way your central character, although you know there's a number of very big characters, but Joe, the white sailor who we just met at the start of the book, he's introduced by his friend Habs to King Dick, who is the self-appointed artistic director of Block 4's theatre company. Habs leapt onto the stage, followed by Ned Penny and two others. Joe saw Pastor Simon shrug and usher the choir away. Dick jumped from the pulpit, and to a backdrop of cheers and clapping, they performed lines and scenes from Othello, seemingly at random. Joe looked on in wonder as a stooped grey-haired man miraculously became Desdemona. One of the drunks he'd squeezed past became Michael Cassio, and Ned recited the lines of Rodrigo. When the players were spent... The applause and stomping went on, Joe clapping long and hard too. When Habs finally jumped from the stage, King Dick wasn't far behind. So, Mr. Hill from Boston, said the king, sweat running under his hat. What say you? I know the play, King Dick, said Joe smiling, and I am speechless. King Dick nodded appreciatively. How many players do you have? asked Joe. We manage with eleven said the king. We lost our clown to the parks and Montano to jail fever. 
but everyone came to see it anyway. And did you ever have white men play any parts, King Dick? asked Joe. The king's eyes narrowed slightly, and he adjusted his hat. Do we need white men, Mr. Hill? Joe realized that many of the nearby conversations had quietened or stopped altogether. Well, no, I suppose, began Joe. Shakespeare was black, Mr. Hill. We all know that, interrupted the king. So why would we need any white men? It was a question, but it still sounded like a threat. To Joe's puzzled expression, Hab slowly, subtly shook his head. Joe swallowed his question and pointed instead at the stage and the scenery. Oh, you don't... I, I was just hoping, he said, to maybe offer my services? You just mentioned before we heard that reading, actually, about how the memoir, the Yarn of a Yankee Privateer, showed the first evidence of people hearing choirs, black choirs singing. Presumably it was there that you found evidence also that there were productions of Shakespeare. This uh, Yarn of the Yankee Privateer I had to buy in, uh, and was imported from America. I've never bought a book from America right. before. But I wanted to have tangible proof that this play actually existed because so many people's reaction has been to to this story and the idea of King Dick is sort of, are you, are you sure about this? You yeah. know, before we commit to <laughs> doing all this, are you sure that you're right? So... This is one of the books that talks about going to see Romeo and Juliet being produced in uh, in Block Four. Yes, so this is exactly the source. And, he, and Othello before it. That's Othello true as well. Fir- yeah, Othello was first, and Romeo and Juliet. I mean, there may well have been others, but they're the two that are specifically referenced. So those references in that clip are sort of like throwaway bits of Othello, which they've already produced yeah. with Romeo and Juliet still to come. Yeah, but that's also fascinating, of course, because you know, I mean, it's crazy and amazing enough that they produced uh, Shakespeare and had a theatre company. In a way, if, if you're going to you know go with that, as obviously it is true, then you think, oh, Othello, that sort of makes sense. Yes. But then to go on and think, right, now we'll do Romeo and Juliet seems kind of extraordinary. I think, I think if it had just been Othello, I'm not sure if, I, if I'd have got to write in the book. It, it, book, it was the fact that Romeo and Juliet seems such a gift, you know, mm. the idea of, you know, if you're going to do warring families and you're in a segregated block yourself, uh, and if you're trying to reproduce the lawless streets of Verona and you're in a kind of a crazy prison, it just seemed like it was being presented to me saying, here you are, write this story, you know, this needs to be done. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. His real name is Richard Crafus. Richard Crafus, yeah, King, King Dick. Dick. That's his real and name. And he's a real cat person, really yeah. existed in the prison, and it's yeah. not the first time, I noticed this in your uh, notes at the end of the book, that he's been fictionalised, if that's the right word, because yeah. you know, he's, he's turned up in a novel or a, he's been in films as well is that right he was in he was in one film which was uh which was made in the in the in 1943 I, I think and in that film he's portrayed as a revolutionary from haiti i mean he just has the name king dick and he's a very imposing figure but he's haitian and he's completely different to the factual king dick i mean we don't know that much about him other than in fact we know nothing about him until he turns up in Dartmoor, and the British are very precise in their documentation. They've weighed him and they've measured him and right. they describe him. Oh, right. So that we know uh, we know that he was on a ship called the Requin, which is French for shark. He was captured off Bordeaux. He then turns up in Dartmoor prison. He get, gets put in block four. He quickly takes control. I mean, he's clearly in charge very, very quickly. He's like grouty in porridge <laughs> in some respects. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's, an interesting, that's an interesting image. But yeah. I mean, for younger listeners who won't understand that reference, grouty <laughs> porridge, porridge, the, the sitcom with, with Ronnie Barker, was the kind of prison gangster guy who ran the prison from the inside. Yeah. And there always is a character like that, it seems, in prison. Grouty can get you anything. You, know, yeah. you want 
20 Benson and Hedges. Exactly. He's the one. He's the one who and also has a that. relationship with the people who run the prison. Well, that's uh, and that in and in King Dick's case, the the British authorities love him because mm. Dick has complete control over Block Four. The other, the White Blocks, have a kind of a uh, they have prisoner committees where they argue and discuss, you know, a, a, a little bit democratic. And the British would far rather deal with one guy. And, and he has in, absolute power. As and well, he has seems. absolute power. I mean, he's a gangster. Mm. And he, he always carried a club in one hand and wore a bearskin hat on his head. He was six foot seven. Uh, and the average height for a sailor was like five, 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 six. Six so foot seven is incredible for, in, for the time. Exactly. If I'd created this character, I think people would just be quite snooty about it. Mm. So... A lot of the effort of the book was in trying to make him not a cartoon character. Yeah. He puts on plays and he's a gangster. Trying to assemble all that into some kind of believable character was, you know, it was half the half Yeah, the well, book, I, think, I think. I think that, you know, he's a very fascinating character, both because of the reality and because of how he's represented in the novel. And one of the things that makes him a fascinating character is, of course, he is neither good, a goodie or a baddie. For want to, to bring it down to absolute, you know, banal speech, yeah. you know, he's clearly a very dangerous, very violent man. At the same time, he has a poet's soul. Yeah, and, and so trying to put that together, this is a very revolutionary time. So the American Revolution, which we've mentioned, the French Revolution, these are all very recent. Mm. The revolution in Haiti is even more recent. You know, the only successful slave rebellion, and I think he would have been immersed in all in all of that. So. I've made him aware of Rousseau and Hobbes. And I think if, if he was so enamoured of Shakespeare and he was a gangster, I'm trying to put all those together. You know, how did he fall in love with Shakespeare? We heard in that clip he says to Joe Hill, Shakespeare was black, Mr. Hill. We mm. all know that. Mm. And that just seemed to make sense. I mean, actually, that line comes from an interview that I did with Maya Angelou in which she said, I mean, she'd said it elsewhere, mm. as a nine-year-old girl growing up in Missouri without any books in the house, that she would go to the library and she'd read Shakespeare and she was convinced that Shakespeare was not only black but uh, a girl because I think she was reading the sonnets at the time and the Shakespeare that she was reading spoke to her Mm. in a way that she found extraordinary. Mm. So I thought, well, if you're obsessed with Shakespeare at the turn of the the 19th century, maybe you would think that as well. Why wouldn't you? And also one imagines it's tongue-in-cheek to some extent. Uh, When King Dick says that, I mean, King Dick... One of the things he is able to do, which, again, may or may not be true at the time, but he's, he's something of a Black Panther, for want of a better word. He has an idea of black identity and black culture, yes. which I don't know if that's anachronistic or not, right? But it doesn't matter in terms of the novel because you completely buy into it yeah. in the novel. And it seems to me that that claiming of Shakespeare is part of that. He's also very extraordinary with language himself. You know, the way he breaks down long words into, yes. into syllables. And anyone who's obsessed with language will want Shakespeare on their side. You know, Joe Hill says in that bit, you know, you have, have you had a white person yet? And King Dick is like a bit put out by that, like, do we need one? But then Joe Hill is the first white person to yes. be in a black production and therefore to, as it were, question the idea of segregation. We, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a particular thing that happens in Romeo and Juliet which would involve the meeting of a black and a white man yeah. physically. Can I say that? Should yeah, I just yeah, say? Do you mind? Th- do you mind this spoiler? No, no, no. I, okay. think, that, I think that's fine because Act One, Scene Five is 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 totemic, really. Yeah. Well, Act One, Scene Five, uh, you know, Holy Palmer's kiss and all that stuff is the moment in which Romeo and Juliet kiss ignites their love to some extent. Now, in this production, that's a black man sailor yep. and a white man sailor, yep. young. 
having to kiss. And it seems to be one of the most fascinating things, I suppose, is there doesn't seem to be any issue at all with the fact they're both men, because it just would have been the case. The issue is that they're black and white, yeah. and that might cause terrible trouble I think in the prison. Certainly. The, the all-male production would have been absolutely standard. And the, yeah. f- the, first, uh, the first Juliet uh, ever recorded is a man called Robert Goff, which mm. is why there's a character in the book called Robert Goff, just because I thought it was funny. The fact that Romeo is black and Juliet is white really is the issue. Mm. And they were aware of this as being like a powder keg yes. thing, that if they kiss, it's going to go off. Yeah, and and not only from the point of view of the British authorities, so the, the, the agent, who's the, which is how the governor is referred to, he says, lose the kiss or lose the play, because he doesn't want to see something so dangerous portrayed on stage. And I think in in this respect, he's probably speaking on behalf of a lot of the sailors as well mm. because it's just taking it too far. Although they will probably all have seen it on a regular basis uh, in their, in their mm. line of work, mm. seeing it on stage makes it special and makes it different. Mm. And that physical relationship between the black and the white, that was the, that's, the, that's the powder cake moment. Yeah. Tell me about your next object that you brought. Well... This is an apology for an object, right. really. Yeah, it's, it's a bit a sh- of paper, really. It's a bit of paper which has got five live on it. These right. ready five live. There, there you go. That's nice. A that's, lovely, lovely object. Yeah, that's you could the whole. It everything. Well, I didn't think I could bring in the whole of because most of them conceptually. Are you brought radio five. That's right. I'm conceptually bringing in five live, and this is because I don't think I'd be writing any of this if I hadn't spent eight years doing the afternoon show there, where I interviewed two authors at least two authors a week for eight years, mm. and a lot of them were debut writers. And, well, there were two things, really. One was starting to talk to authors, starting to think about writing, and the other thing was making a point of interviewing scientists. Because you tended only to hear scientists being... You'd hear them for 60 seconds or 90 seconds, and it was all very soundbite. And I thought, I would quite like to know more and understand about this, so let's bring them on for half an hour and 40 minutes. So can you now explain your extraordinarily complex theory about multiverse or string mm. theory or something like that, mm. and we're going to give you half an hour. We might struggle to catch up, but, mm. you know, treat us sensibly and let's see what we can do. Mm. So when I left Five Live, I had books and writing and science all churning around my head mm. so that when my son, who was 10 at the time, started to talk about science, it was the only thing that he was particularly interested in. Mm. And for reasons that I still can't remember, I thought I'd write him a short story it ended up being about the science-obsessed kid in Cornwall called Itchingham Loft, who, who you referred to at the beginning. So I just don't think any of that, any of this would have happened if it, if it hadn't been for spending eight years at Five Life. OK. That's, so why, that's could, why they're an object. And, so just give me some sense, because I don't know, and I apologise, but then I am not a young adult and my children have only just become young adults. Yeah. What, what is Itchingham Loft's thing? What does he do? So he is an element hunter. And an element hunter is someone who collects the periodic table. He's a bit of an outsider. He doesn't really fit in, just is obsessed with science. When he finds out about element hunting, it seems to him to be the most exciting thing in the world. Who wouldn't want to be an element hunter? You know, you're collecting the things of life. Mm. So people will remember the periodic table from school, hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, and so on. So I thought that it was an ideal basis for uh, a kid's adventure, that you could go off collecting things Mm. based on the periodic table. Some of them are radioactive, so therefore they're illegal for him to have. There's gold and silver and all these kind of uh, things which he... You know, if you go around the house, you can collect things which are represented in the periodic table. And it's his search for different ideas and different objects that are on the periodic table which get him into a, 
a lot of trouble. So let's have the next item. It's sitting in front of me, so I feel we should talk about well, it. Well, I took this photograph this morning. Again, this is something that I have in my office, which is a version of the periodic table, which has been drawn by Oliver Jeffers, who's a fantastic... I know, uh, Oliver Jeffers, yeah, he's brilliant. Uh, and he's, he's written to Simon down at the bottom. He's put SI, which is the sign for silicon. So I look at this all the time, and I think it's a beautiful piece of work anyway. And there's a scene in one of the Itch books where Itch, who's 14, he's just been to a funeral and he's trying to find some structure and shape in his life. And he looks at the periodic table and and he gets his sense of order in the universe from the periodic table. Mm. And it was such an important part of the first three books that I wrote that it feels as though it's something that enables my writing. There's a relationship between that, isn't there, and this book, with Mad Blood Stirring, in that you seem to be someone who finds very quizzical and unusual bits of history. Yeah. And, and you, you, you run with it. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, I think the, the two things that these books also have in common is that when I found out about the phrase element hunter, I thought someone must have done this story before because it sounds so thrilling. Mm. You know, um, everyone's looking for, for a new idea. There it is. It's, it's this iconic piece of um, art and science, which is the periodic table. It's there. Everyone knows it. Well, let's, ex- let's explore that because if someone wants to collect all this stuff that 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 sounded like a a really good basis for a story and in the same way when I discovered the stuff about block four and Romeo and Juliet again I thought someone else will have done this story surely everyone knows about King Dick Mm. is it just me Mm. that doesn't know about King Mm. Dick so I did as much research as I could you you have to be careful if you're googling King Dick I can see kind of narrow the search just a little bit before we got anywhere and I didn't do it at work I wonder what his porn name is (laughs) (laughs) Richard Crafus possibly yes almost certainly I asked around and it was quite clear that the story hadn't been done although as he's appeared but not in a a novel like this he has appeared but he hasn't appeared as a central character he's been sort of like in, in the background were you at all worried about making the leap for that's not quite the right word because actually I don't believe in the hierarchy but I'm going to say it anyway yeah. from a young adult novel to a sort of grown up historical yeah. novel Yeah, I mean yes and no because Joe and Habs, the two sailors, are 16 and 17 there were some uh, there was a body of opinion which said this could be a YA book because right. it, basically if your lead characters are, uh, are teenagers right. then then it's a YA book but it was because of the number of adult characters I think which took it away from from well, let's 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 have two of the adult characters talking. Actually, in this next clip, you do a thing at the end of each part, which is always King Dick meeting Agent Shortland, yes, the so governor of Dartmoor. He was he was the real governor of Dartmoor at the time. He was. Thomas and you Shortland, always do yes. that as a play, and that's very interesting because, of course, there's much about plays in the book and about the you know the nature of theatre, and it feels like there's always a little theatrical moment at the end of each part. Let's hear that. So I think it's the third meeting between King Dick and Agent Shortland. King Dick. I'll play along with your game, Captain. He pulls a small book from the shelves, leafs through its pages, selecting one. Looks at Shortland. You have some poetry on your shelves, Captain Shortland. Shortland. I do? King Dick. William Wordsworth. His poem to Toussaint L'Ouverture, the leader of the Haiti slave revolt. Shortland, astonished. Really? I never knew. King Dick, you should know your people better, Captain. It concludes, he reads, There's not a breathing of the common wind that will forget thee. Thou hast great allies. Thy friends are exultations, agonies, and love and man's unconquerable mind. Shortland, 
I'm not quite sure what to make of that, I'm afraid. He takes the book and reads. He calls him, O miserable chieftain, is that you, Crafus? Is that what you're telling me? I hope not, because I know where I am with you and with four. I can speak directly to you, and I know you can speak directly to your men. He throws the book on the desk. King Dick. And so? Shortland. So do your men understand that, though the war is over, for them nothing can change until the ratified treaty arrives back in England? King Dick. But it has changed already, Captain. You gotta feel that. You can wave papers at us, but we know we should be going home. And when Congress has ratified, you'd better be getting us out swiftly, or you'll have a riot so big you'll need a whole army to deal with us. That was an extract of the audiobook of Mad Blood Stirring, written by my guest Simon Mayo and read by Rashan Stone. Yeah, I went, to, I went to hear him record that just because I'd never heard anyone do one of my books before. And I apologised to him for those sections because it's easier in, in a book to, to write uh, in in a play style, but yeah. there he's having to tell us who the yeah. who's speaking. Although he doesn't uh, really, because his accent's so good, he's great that I you actually, would know anyway. Yeah, yeah. And, so, and in the book, presumably, he does multiple accents. He must have to do and, yeah, and yeah. women and oh, he's he's fantastic, and he gets all the accents absolutely spot on. So I'm thrilled with the way uh, he's read it. Um, let's go on to your next object, which is a book I've read. Actually, do you want to tell us what it is? Uh, yes, yeah, Stephen King's on writing uh, a memoir of the craft. I brought this in, and the I should say the audio book is fantastic as mm. well, which Stephen reads. I call him Stephen. That you've met, met him, but no, I have interviewed him once, but he yeah. was he was in another he was in another studio, and I just I just found it an inspirational book because I don't read how to do it books, but when I was just starting off on this odd adventure and wondering if I actually could write a, a novel. Do you mean this this novel? No, not this one. No, this was for the, itch, for the itch books. Yeah. yeah. Someone recommended Stephen King's on writing. I'd read some Stephen King as a kid. I read The Stand when I was a teenager, you know, and, I, and I like it. I think, mm. it's, I think it's terrific. And he's clearly a master at what he does. But the first half of this book is, this is, this is a bit of my life story, which he wrote having been run down by a car and nearly killed. And then the second half is, and this is how you could do it too. And I, when I finished it, I, it was quite enabling. He suggests a structure. He suggests a way in which you too might be able to write a story. And because I was on the cusp of, of deciding whether to write a story or not, I found it very powerful. It's quite, so, um, my memory of it, I read, I read it a few years ago, is it's quite macho. Yeah, it, there's no airy-fairy nonsense about writing. I remember Frank Skinner once saying to me that he thought of writing comedy and doing comedy as like a craft, a bit like making a table, which I thought was very Frank Skinner in that it sort of refused any nonsense yeah. about, you know, higher muses or whatever. And I think that book is a bit like that. I remember it, Maybe. Sort, of, it sort of advises very straightforward things like first draft, don't show it to anyone. Correct. You, know, second, you write with the door closed and rewrite yes. with the door open. Yeah. You know, a thousand words a day, five days a week or six days a week, I think yeah. he says. Then put it in a in a drawer and leave it for six weeks before you go back and then... Did you follow all that? I thought, OK, I'll give that a go. I'll see what I can do. Mm. So I worked out my version of that. Yeah. I mean, I think its main influence in this book has been... He has a whole section about honest dialogue. Right. And the racial language in this book is strong. Their power to offend has increased over the years mm -hmm. rather than diminished. You know, and Stephen King's characters are profane you know on a regular basis but he he says if i don't believe the words that your character is speaking then give up mm. and i when i i spoke to my mum prior to sending her a copy of the book i said yeah hey look the language is pretty strong in here but to be honest 
my sailors are speaking to each other the way I guess sailors would have spoken to each other at the turn of but the that, 19th century. But that's very convincing you know. in the book, I think. I mean, not just the profanity and, and the racial language. It feels pretty, I mean, I don't know, but it feels like uh, historically correct. The oh, references well, yeah. they make and the sort of dialects they use. How did you get that registered? I did feel very white and very London, mm. you know, when I was when I was writing the book because so much of it was trying... We spend a lot of time in Block 4. How did they speak? Well, the honest answer is we don't know. Mm. Uh, and there are no recordings until the 1850s, 1860s, which I've listened to in the Library of Congress. And I have done a version of that. So some of them are escaped slaves. Some of them have been free men for many generations. Mm. Some of them will have come from West Africa. Some of them will come from the Caribbean. As I said, many of them have been in America for a long time. So I've tried to come up with voices that sound as though they could have been spoken uh, in 1815. In there's the one, there are more, there's more than one, but they're, they're, they're pretty minor characters. There's one female character in the book who's very important and very, I, I really thought she was really brilliantly drawn, who is Elizabeth, the governor's wife. So she's having an affair with the prison doctor. There's an element of sort of Romeo and Juliet to that, of illicit love and going on. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, Romeo and Juliet finds its way into the outer prison in all sorts of ways. Elizabeth Shortland is a very important character. She's very important, I think, in the feel of the book and also the plot and how uh, the latter stages of the book uh, develop. And she was one of those characters who sort of emerged in the writing and sort of demanded to be taken slightly more seriously than she was at the beginning. Yeah. There's a book came out a few years ago, which I think is called The Daughters of Britannia, which was letters written by the wives and daughters of British ambassadors who went overseas. So they were not allowed to be ambassadors because they were women. Mm. So the only time we get to hear their voices is from their letters. Mm. And it's collected over a couple of hundred years. And it's, it's fascinating for the kind of women who found themselves in these roles. And Elizabeth Shortland is a woman who is a daughter of Britannia, a daughter of empire. Mm. She thought when she married Thomas Shortland that she would have a glamorous life. He mm. was a, a swashbuckling Royal Navy captain. Yeah. And she's ended up instead, as is, I don't know if I can say this on the Penguin podcast, but is referred to early on in the book as the arse end of England, yeah. and it, which it actually is. So she, well, she's ended up in the most male environment she could possibly <laughs> yeah, that's right. end up and, in as well. You know, and you don't need any imagination at all because many people will have been, walked across Dartmoor. They know the kind of place that it is. Mm. Her entanglement with, with the physician is, is the joy of her life. Yeah, and is a way out, I think, of yes. you know, what yes, seems absolutely. like a, a terrible marriage and a terrible situation. Yeah. Let's hear a bit more. Now, we've just referred to you know that illicit love, and I referred earlier to the, what is perhaps the main illicit love in the story, which is between Joe Hill, who plays Juliet, and Hab Snow, the black sailor, who plays Romeo. Now, as you say, the nature of that illicitness, I'm not even sure that's a word, is less about the fact they're both men and more about their, uh, the fact that one of them is black and one of them is white. But let's listen to the passage that explores that. The king interrupted. Can't hear you, Mr. Hill. Louder. Assume we're all drunk. We're growing bored and want to go home. Joe snatched a nervous glance at the king, then at Habs, and was back to the book. For saints have hands that pilgrims' hands do touch. He was louder this time. And palm to palm is holy Palmer's kiss. Tommy looked puzzled but said nothing. Sam asked the question for him. What's that mean? He said, looking in turn at the king, Joe and Habs. We should be holding hands, said Habs, and Julia's saying that when a pilgrim holds a statue's hand, it's something like a kiss, I guess. Sam looked unimpressed. You both sound mighty annoying to my way of thinking. I know this was a long time ago, but ain't that a strange way of courting? 
King Dick ignored the exchange. So Romeo says, Then move not while my prayer's effect I take, and kisses Juliet. He looks at Habs, then Joe. Well then? Now it was Joe's turn to blush. You mean here? We probably shouldn't. Because, probed the king quietly. Now Joe looked directly at him. With respect, King Dick, you know very well why. Tell me. Even quieter. Because, said Joe, a hint of steel in his voice, a coloured boy kissing a white boy would be considered an abomination. And if that happens on a stage, well, we'd be most likely locked up. And if it's that stage there, he pointed to the other end of the cockloft, we'll all be in the casho. Forever. One of the things I know about this book, because actually I bumped into the producer, is that it got optioned very quickly for a film. Uh, is it right that you, uh, on two paragraphs or something, is that right? I wrote four pages of a, of a synopsis. I'd never written a synopsis before, but my literary agent said, when, once we'd worked out what the story was going to be and the idea of telling it over five acts and to sort of have echoes of, of Romeo and Juliet throughout it, he said, you know, put it all down on four pages. And so I did that and... If you look to those four pages now, it's not far off what actually became uh, the final book. And on the basis of that four pages, uh, yes, they signed they signed the film. I brought rights. it up partly because you know there's so much in it that speaks to modern ears to some extent. You know, it's about race, it's about sexuality, uh, it's about you know uh, Britain and America. Do you think that was partly to do with it? All these things that felt like actually yeah. it's set in 1814 or 1812, but it's really got a lot of modern stuff in it. I think all the best historical fiction feels as, as though it has echoes, and I'm not comparing myself at all with Robert Harris. When Robert Harris is writing about Cicero, it feels like he's writing about Peter Mandelson mm. to me or Tony Blair. You know, So it has, it's written with those echoes all the time. And I think one of the reasons why they would have taken it is it absolutely speaks to the race discussion and argument in the United States. Charlottesville happened in the middle of this book. Mm. And I think that the race side of the story was written with increasing emphasis. So if it has those modern sensibilities, then I think that is that is probably one of the reasons why uh, it was picked up. Look, you need to go, but I must ask you one more thing. Yeah. You never talk about your children's names. It's very opposite to me. I'm always bringing my children in, put them on Twitter. I talk about them in my show. No, blah, it's blah, very, blah. very entertaining. It is but, but you just call them child number one, child. How many children do you have? I've got three. Child number one, child number two, and child number three. And it's, I've got a note here saying that child number one has just had a tattoo yes. related to mad blood stirring. Yeah, he's, That's dedication to your father. Yeah, the artwork is, uh, I mean, I love the cover, but it's got a, um, uh, it's got a, a drawing of, a, of an eagle, which is the American eagle, plus also it's the name of uh, Joe Hill's ship, with talons out descending over a very choppy sea. Now, when I look at it, I'm thinking, OK, yes, I can see how that might be something that you'd put in a tattoo. And when I came back from the launch, my eldest said to my wife... How old is your eldest? He's 25. Oh, right. So he's OK to have a yeah, tattoo. I, I should have said he's like nine or something, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, shall I show Dad? And my wife says... If you want to, I'm thinking, what? Where is it? Where is this conversation going? And he unbuttons his shirt and takes his shirt off, and he's had this eagle tattooed onto his uh, shoulder blade. Goodness. And I was thinking, my well, first reaction was, really, Are you sure? And then the other thing, I, I can't be cross, can I? Because no. it's the it's the artwork for my book. So. I was really quite touched by it. And yeah. Someone has suggested I should, the next cover for my next book should have like a pink fairy on there and yeah. see how far his devotion goes. Or indeed a tattoo of King Dick. 
And it'd yeah. be very, yeah. very important that he Googles the right one if he's going to get a tattoo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go yeah. for the six foot seven sailor. Thank you very much, Simon. It's been fascinating, absolutely fascinating Thank talking you, to you. It's Mad Blood Stirring. It's out now? Yes. It's yes. out now. It's a fantastic read. Uh, please do go and get it. Thank you very much, Simon Mayer. David, thank you very much indeed. From one of the world's most popular public thinkers come 12 Rules for Life, which offer an antidote to the chaos in our lives. Acclaimed clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson provides 12 profound and practical principles on how to live a meaningful life. From setting your house in order before criticising others, to comparing yourself to who you were yesterday, not someone else today. Happiness is a pointless goal. Instead, we must search for meaning. It took a long time to settle on a title. 12 Rules for Life. An Antidote to Chaos. Why did that one rise up above all others? First and foremost, because of its simplicity. It indicates clearly that people need ordering principles and that chaos otherwise beckons. We require rules, standards, values, alone and together. We're pack animals, beasts of burden. We must bear a load to justify our miserable existence. We require routine and tradition. That's order. Order can become excessive, and that's not good. But chaos can swamp us so we drown, and that is also not good. We need to stay on the straight and narrow path. Each of the 12 rules of this book and their accompanying essays therefore provide a guide to being there. There is the dividing line between order and chaos. That's where we are simultaneously stable enough, exploring enough, transforming enough, repairing enough, and cooperating enough. 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson is available to download now from all audiobook retailers.